people don't necessarily know their neighbors, locals who have specialized roles. I don't really associate with you or you or you because I'm so highly specialized in what I do. So you don't know your grocer, grocery person's name. You don't, have, uh, you don't have a relationship with their kids. You're not their teacher or you just really don't know them. You drive into your urban home, your garage door closes and you're done. But you see, the more advanced and global that our society becomes, the more disconnected to our immediate surroundings we also become. So I wanna challenge you to consider are we in community right now? Hey, welcome to Night Church, the Friday evening service of Praxis, the young adult ministry of the Loma Linda University Church. You're gonna be hearing some great sermons, testimonies on this podcast that are gonna encourage and deepen your faith. We are so excited that you're here, and I hope you enjoy this sermon, and so much so that you share it with someone that you love. Welcome. Good evening, everyone. Good to see all of you here. Hey, it is such a blessing to be in the community of God on the Sabbath. Some of you maybe are new to Adventism. You're like, community of God, Sabbath. Man, it is just 24 hours truly where it just feels different. It just feels different. If you've never really experienced the feeling of Sabbath, man, I want to encourage you to do it differently than maybe than you have been, and that might bring it about. But tonight, I'm really thrilled uh, to be up on the pulpit again with all of you. I'm really excited to share God's word with you, and would you bow your heads with me as, uh, as we start tonight? Jesus, thank you so much for your faithfulness unto us. God, we are people who, undeserving of your grace, have received it and receive it daily, moment by moment, failure by failure, and yet strength by strength, God. We are empowered by your blessing. And so, Lord, tonight my prayer is that we would not only sense your blessing, your mercy, your grace, your goodness, but that we would begin doing something very different, that we would abundantly open ourselves up to help others find it, find it through this place and space. Lord, I also pray over those who've walked into this place alone, burdened by some relationship issue, those who are yearning for what is to come and have not had it yet. Lord, I pray over those who have been seeking and have not found. My prayer tonight is that we would find it through your word in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. I met Ryan when I was 19 years old. I happened to be a young adult, youth, pastor, task force worker. And there I was, I had just really come into faith. I'd become genuinely, I believe at that time, a disciple of Jesus. And I met Ryan as he just came to church every once in a while and I started kind of start up a conversation with him finding out his name and a little bit about him. He was a computer programmer who worked in Seattle during the week and he would drive up on the weekends to kind of this area where my roommate and I were living and doing ministry. 
And we started to invite them to some of the gatherings we would start to create for just young adults. We were kind of helping mainly with the youth ministry, but we wanted to hang out with some people that are a little bit older. So we had these young adult hangouts, and we would invite him to be there. Well, if you knew Ryan, you knew that he was also really awkward. You see that Ryan had, at that time, this was right before the DSM-5, those of you who are in medicine know, came out, and Asperger's was the title that you would give this guy. But he was on the autistic spectrum. And so when you know anyone who has what we then called Asperger's and now just kind of a mild form of autism, you would know that these people have very unique kind of qualities. One being that they all seem to not catch social cues. If you've ever had a friend who has this, I had one, he'd get literally right up into my face, like an inch away. And other times he would like yell in the, in the cafeteria, he'd yell my name, hey, fella, you know, in the middle of everybody. Like everyone's like, what is going on? Yeah. Just didn't see, you know. Now I do that sometimes naturally, but I haven't been diagnosed, so I don't know. <laughs> I might have it too. But other times, some people are more introverted and they just keep to themselves, but they still don't always catch social cues. And so Ryan had this difficulty connecting at school growing up, never really found genuine friendship. And he also struggled as we got to know him more at home too. But it wasn't just him. You see, his parents were extremely dysfunctional. His dad, a doctor, but a porn addict, had his magazine stashed in his drawer that the boys would sometimes find and look at themselves. A mom who was a homemaker but an alcoholic and that didn't help anything. And so he grew up in a home where parents didn't really communicate with him or with each other and didn't know how to nurture or communicate. So he was ostracized there, didn't find community even at home. And now in his mid-20s in the workplace, he would sleep on this desk in the middle of the week because Seattle's an expensive place. I don't know how many of you know that humble life of sleeping in your car and random couches and friends, but that was his life. And so, there you go, got a hand coming up. We would invite him to sleep in our couch there at the church kind of parsonage that we had, this little attached kind of house room that we slept at, and my buddy and I, and, and he'd sleep on the couch. And then he told me a story I will never forget in my entire life. He was, just a few years before that, going from Washington, where we were, to Vegas, where his aunt was, invited him to spend the week with him. They were going to do some kind of a family gathering. And so he, excited to do that, ends up heading to Vegas. Getting to a gas station just outside of the city, filling up his gas, a guy comes up to him and he says, hey, you want some stuff? Ryan, not completely sure what he was referencing, but also not really caring, the one thing he knew was he was yearning for a connection with someone and yearned for community and a conversation. And he said, sure. Well, this guy ended up spending the week with Ryan. The two of them hit it off, talking back and forth, and this guy, drug dealer of Vegas, takes him on a ride of his life, shows him the hideouts that he's at, showed him all the secret stashes where he would put the drugs and where he would hide money and different trash cans, certain alleyways, pulling out bricks and hiding them in light posts and 
he found all kinds of places. Ryan said they got a little high, but they mainly just talked, listened to music, and laughed. And Ryan said it was the first time in my life that I actually felt loved for being me and cared for who I simply was. First time, he said, I felt love. You know, you think about it, I don't know if I could ever forget a story of a young man who doesn't find community at home, at school, or in his neighborhood, but finds it with someone who we would deem to be the lowest in a society, someone that's a nobody in terms of professionals here. I mean, it's definitely a different kind of professional, but one we would not admire, nor would we call an upstanding citizen to associate yourself with regularly. And yet when I thought about what I would have titled this sermon, I would have said, when a druggie does the church's job. Mm. But instead, tonight, I'm calling this a community is born. Tonight, we begin a six-part series entitled Community and Us, focused on the book of Acts, literally from the first chapter to the last, seeing how a community is formed through its inception at Jesus' ascension, leaving the earth all the way to then when Paul is imprisoned in Rome and finally there with his death in the last chapters. The unique thing about the book of Acts is that it's a bridge. It's a bridge from the gospels, the life story of Jesus, and a bridge into the rest of the New Testament. The books of Paul and Peter and Jude and John, the Revelator, it is a bridge that connects us to the characters who are found beyond the New Testament. We see the characters find ways of struggling with each other and yet calling themselves Christians. We see them compromising their faith and their beliefs and yet calling themselves still Christian. We see them building new things, starting endeavors that are exciting, being part of mission experiences where some may eventually even die. And yet they all call themselves Christians. So what is there for us to learn in this book, in this series? The thing I want us to figure out more than anything else is what did this New Testament church and people believe at such a heartfelt level that it would have changed the world and how one little word, community, made all the difference. Well, the book begins by simply itself being a book written by the name of a man who is a physician, Luke. Luke is writing to another man named Theophilus, and it's a letter that he's writing to him. It isn't just the first letter he's writing to him. This is now the second letter because Dr. Luke wrote the gospel of Luke, and he's writing to Theophilus who wants to understand what happened now beyond just Jesus, but what happened with the believers after he left. And so Dr. Luke, who was potentially a companion with Paul on many of his missionary journeys, understood a lot that had occurred, a lot of the characters that were there, and he put it into pen and writing. But one unique thing, people call this the Acts of the Apostles, but one beautiful reality that you'll see from beginning to end is that Luke, the doctor, had a relationship with the Holy Spirit. And this is more than just the acts of the apostles. It's really the acts of the Holy Spirit by a people who are empowered by it. 
And so the book starts off, very first chapter, the disciples are still confused. And they ask Jesus a question. Is it now, Lord, that the kingdom of heaven will be established, that Israel will reign again? They don't get it. Jesus was establishing a kingdom not of this earth. And so here now Jesus speaks to them and tells them, go spend some time together because what is to come will be the greatest gift I could ever give you. And they're given the Holy Spirit. After spending time in prayer and fasting for almost over a week, there are 120 of them, both the 12 disciples, one who was added, and now those who were with them, women, children, and others who saw all that had happened and even saw the resurrected Jesus. And they're blessed with the Holy Spirit. They start speaking in tongues. I believe if you study the Greek here, you'll see that the word tongues in this usage is more in reference to classical languages. It isn't some special language where people start gibbering around and you're like, they have a heavenly language. No, because the people said they understood in their own tongue. And so this Speaking in tongues led people to think like, why are there so many people in a group speaking in all these different languages? Are they drunk? No. If you understand the context, what's being done here is this was during the festival season. People from every walk of life had gathered in Jerusalem to celebrate the festivals. Who was the person that Philip reached? He was an Ethiopian, literally out of the middle portion of Africa. You had people who were in other portions of Roman territory who spoke other languages. You had people of southern parts of Europe and Greece. They had all come to Jerusalem. And so when they spoke in these languages, it was to reach them with the gospel. And now Peter addressing everyone states they're not drunk. They're telling you, about the Messiah, the one who was promised. So now with this context, this background, now we jump in the text that I want us to spend our time with here in Acts chapter two tonight, beginning in verse 36. Listen to this now here. Acts chapter two, bust out your digital Bible if you've got a real Bible with you. Those real Christians that are here amongst us, they will do that. Now tonight I don't have one, so I'm of the fake kind, so... Acts chapter 2, verse 36. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified. Wow, call him out right at the beginning. Whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. Peter said to them, other apostles, brothers, then what should we do? And Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, whom our Lord will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them. Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. It's an interesting thing to tell you the following. 
As a Christian, have you ever thought that maybe you might need to still be converted? You see, Peter and the apostles, the 120, were preaching to the saved, the Jews, the chosen, the blessed, the ones who had access to God like none other in their community. Not like the Gentiles, definitely not like the Romans, no. They were the chosen. And yet, the text here brings out this incredible realization that if you break it down, you see Paul, I mean, Peter was literally leading them through a process of conversion. Have you ever thought you might actually need a conversion? At 19 years old, I'd grown up as a pastor's kid all my life, not knowing any better, that's how life was. My children will know no better. And yet, I, a child of the church, one who could debate with people about scripture and ideas and thoughts, did not yet have a walk with the one whom I debated about. Might that be you tonight? The church people needed a conversion, and so we walked through the steps. The people first were intrigued. They were willing to listen. When you talk about how do you lead someone to Jesus, you need to find an intriguing way to lead them to believe in Christ. That might be through, hey, one of our small groups doing the chosen again. It's a beautiful way to help lead someone to know Jesus. There's this TV show about Jesus, and it's reached more than a billion people and views. What? Let me, I got to see this. First, they were intrigued. Second, there is conviction after they heard the good news. The good news of Jesus. Jesus came to save you, me, us, those who are the church folk and those who are outside. Third, they were called by Peter then after they were convicted to repent. The Greek word metanoia, the turning, the turning. They were called to turn from something, turn from repent, meaning also to speak out a confession. God, forgive me. Convicted by the gospel, they repent, and even some, well, the 3,000 at least, were baptized even. Tonight, if there might be someone here who is in this room hearing my voice, watching online, if you have yet to be convicted by the gospel and I encourage you, as you hear the good word of Jesus in your life, that he loves, cares for you, yearns to save you, cause you to live in your very best life, John 10, 10, that you might live abundantly here. Repent and be baptized. Come, speak to one of our elders and team. But then here we talk and see this final thing. The spirit leads them also into new action. Peter tells them in verse 40, he says, listen, and he warned them, and it says he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. That was the first century. That was the first century before the iPhone, the first century before computers and cars and global travel and a plane, before text messaging, before we had access to every kind of drug out there, drink we want, food we want, pleasure we desire. I mean, they had so little of yet what we have, and yet he called them a corrupt generation. 
What would he call us? Debased, fully saturated in the world generation. I don't know what he would say. But he says, save yourselves from this generation. You know, when we talk about salvation, a lot of people sometimes confuse this journey of discipleship, a way in which you walk in the rhythms of Jesus, not being how you save yourself in terms of salvation, but how you save yourself from the sins of the world around you. When you walk in the rhythms of Jesus, when you walk in a journey of holiness, you're not saying you're better than, you're not saying also these actions you take or don't take will save you, but rather they save you from a demise while you live on this earth. So Peter encouraged them to save themselves as well after they had heard the gospel and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So then what happens when these 3,000 people are baptized? What happens when the 120 apostles and leaders now are amongst them? What happens? And now look at the next section here, Acts 2, verses 42 to 47. Pay attention to this. What did they do? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property, possessions, and give, they gave everyone who had need. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They still gather in their Jewish synagogues, but they came more regularly, and they came with a focus, a fourfold focus. What did they do in this devotion? What are the four things they did? It's not a rhetorical question. I'd like to hear from you. They broke bread. What else did they do? Verse 42, come on. Speak up a little bit. Okay, they ate the bread. They bread the bread. Okay, what else? There's three other things. Devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching to, what else? Third, fellowship, and finally, let's go back to verse 42, come on. Prayer. Prayer. Boom, fellowship, prayer, breaking of bread, and the apostles' teaching. In this, then, we go on to verse 46. They continued to meet together in temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God, enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I believe what these verses are telling us is they had community. And some of you, when you hear the word community, you hear, hey, we're in community right here, right now. This is community. Let me read you the definition by a sociologist, what community means. Sociology would define community as a group who follow a social structure within a society, culture, norms, values, status. They may work together to organize social life within a particular place 
or they may be bound by a sense of belonging sustained across time and space. What we see here exactly in Acts chapter 2, 1 and 2, is that there were people who were committed to certain values now, customs that bound them together, that they co-created in unison. So when you ask yourself, are you in community right now? Are you and I in community right now? I mean, there's no right answer here. I'm just kind of, so we got some yeses. I got some, got some shaking of the head. No, Gershom, no. Why wouldn't we not be in community right now? Let's hear from some of you who are out here. Why would we not be in community right now at this moment, potentially? Anybody? We're not eating. Okay, okay. There's no food right here, but we will have food. It's coming. The team got afterglow going on. But why would we not maybe be on community right now? Let's break down these four because I'll tell you why I don't actually think we're in community potentially with some of us. Okay? The 19th century German sociologist Ferdinand Tonnes crafted community in two basic ways. The German word, the first one he used was Gemeinschaft. It means literally the study of close social ties in a rural or a post-industrial society where everyone knows each other. The bonds overlap. For example, if your grocer was there in your community, you'd know your grocery guy or lady. And they might even have kids in your school that you're the teacher at. You just have connections together in your community. There's a lot of overlapping and you know one another there. The other type of basic form of community is Gesellschaft. It's the opposite, literally, of Gemeinschaft. And Tonis used this to describe the urban, post-industrial communities where people don't necessarily know their neighbors, locals who have specialized roles. I don't really associate with you or you or you because I'm so highly specialized in what I do. So you don't know your grocer, grocery person's name. You don't, have, uh, you don't have a relationship with their kids. You're not their teacher or you just really don't know them. You drive into your urban home, your garage door closes, and you're done. But you see, the more advanced and global that our society becomes, the more disconnected to our immediate surroundings we also become. So I want to challenge you to consider, are we in community right now? Look at the verse, look at all these verses here, okay? Verse 42 especially. It says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They studied the truth about Jesus, his life, and his way that they would be kind of concerned about. Secondly, this is the most important one where I want you to consider are we in community. They had fellowship, koinonia in the Greek. It literally means a close, meaningful connection. It was the opposite of shallow relationships. If you think about it, in 1 Corinthians 1.9, the word koinonia is used. God is faithful by whom we are called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Literally, you're called to join the, the Trinity. How close was the Trinity? Indistinguishable from one another. They were deeply connected. They had fellowship. 
Thirdly, they broke bread. It wasn't just that communion, like tomorrow at church, we're gonna do communion as a community. But it wasn't just once a quarter, every 13 weeks, it was literally daily. Fourthly, they prayed. The power of prayer that was so powerful that the Holy Spirit literally transformed who they were from being Paul the sinner to being Paul now the holy gospel writer. So I ask you now, are you and I in community? Still might be more confusion. I don't know. I ask you the question, do you have intimate relationships and not romantic intimate? Okay, some of you are like, I definitely got those. <laughs> but do you have meaningful, genuine, heartfelt relationships with people around you that are not shallow and surface level? Do you invite one another into your lives where you eat together, you know one another? Do you have moments where you actually study the word of God together, where you debate and think about scripture and who Jesus is? Do you pray together? Are you in community? Some of you might be saying, hallelujah, I am. Others are like, uh. Here we see that they were devoted. They were devoted. And I ask you, what are Christians today devoted to in the 21st century? What are you devoted to? You know, I'm going to be real frank and honest with you. I am embarrassed. I'm embarrassed at myself. I'm embarrassed if there was a screen that would go, go kind of listing all the things where you'd see how much time I spent doing certain things during the week. You'd be like, shoot, bro. Really? You spent an hour and a half on that real thing on Instagram on Thursday? That was just Thursday. Shoot, you spent this much time on Twitter? You, you spent this much time looking up? You spent, really? That's what you're devoted to? Analyze your life and your time usage. Analyze your time and your time usage, where your mental thoughts are. Some of us are anxious about the most menial of things in life, and we spend so much, gosh, look at that. Look at, but they were devoted to a different way of life that led them to a completely different product at the end. A community that was so beautiful that people said, I need to know about this. I want to be part of this. I need this in my life. I want what you have. So I ask you, are you in community? You see, the thing is, these people were on mission. They were given a mission by Jesus right before he left. I ask you, are you on mission? The reason why community was essential, biblical, first century, New Testament community essential because they had a mission. A mission that we have forgotten we're still on. Matthew chapter 28, 16 to 20. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain that Jesus told them to go to. They worshiped, but some doubted. And Jesus came to them and he said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Behold, I'm with you to the end of the age. 
They had a mission and community. God-centered, focused, Jesus-driven, love and compassion, one that said, I have time to be with you, time to spend in your life, time to be in the word, in prayer and fellowship. This type of community was so attractive that people said, I need this. A community that Ryan would have been so loved in. I don't know if he'd be loved here because he's embarrassing, he's awkward, he makes us feel uncomfortable. How many people are like that in your life? People maybe who, why would I associate with them? Just the question itself shows where we are. To accomplish great things in community, there must be shared values that guide the mission. What values, rhythms guide your life, work, and family? I'm starting to kind of evaluate that in our home because I realize, gosh, if I stay in this screen that shows all the things I'm wasting my life with, these are rhythms that I'm in. These rhythms shape my life. And now realize this, the dangerous position that I am in, that you will be in, that you even are today. But I have little children who watch me all the time. And my rhythms shape their rhythms. My anxiety of wanting to hold my phone shapes their anxiety of desiring a father who doesn't seem to have time for them. Which shapes our family rhythm. Your rhythms and your personal life affects your roommates, your parents, your brothers and sisters, which shapes your communal rhythms in a home, in a workplace. What are the rhythms and values that guide your life? And would they be such that they would bless people instead of be a detriment to them? Do you realize that every miracle that Jesus did was a miracle done in the middle of interruption in his life? Some of you have no time for interruption. I don't have time for this. I don't have time for this. I don't have time for you. I don't have time for this issue. I don't have time to talk about. I don't have time. I don't have, I don't have, I don't. Why? Because you're on a mission to do what? What's, what's the mission you're going to do? Now, I say this with all deference to the reality that I understand. God has given us all talents and gifts to live into, educating ourselves, to learn things, to bless the world with our talents and gifts, professionals in this space. Some of you are still confused, and that's okay. You're figuring it out. But this is the thing. That cannot be your primary mission. If it isn't a mission that's not baptized under the authority of Jesus to lead you to draw others into a holy community where they would sense a love of God. What is your mission that guides your life? You know, I love my senior pastor who's here on staff that's been guiding our church for almost 22 years. He really felt convicted with our administration team to build some values that we as a pastoral team could live into. I wanna just read this to you. This is what we read literally every time before we start our staff meeting together on Tuesday mornings. Listen to this. Our Loma Linda University Church pastoral staff values. 
We commit to the pursuit of healthy community by continuing to grow deeper together in the word of God and by consistently seeking God's spirit in, and wisdom in prayer. We seek to live in healthy community by developing and nurturing the following team qualities, assuming each other's good intentions, practicing direct communication, honoring confidentiality, balancing truth and love and conflict, mutually supporting and calling one another to accountability, solving issues at the lowest possible level. Man, it's beautiful. A lot of them kind of dealing with how do you do community in the midst of a professional space and some of these things have really been helpful for us. Hey, if I have an issue with Pastor Joey, some bugged me. I'm not gonna run to Randy and be like, bro, this guy you hired, man. I'm gonna go to Joey because I'm solving it at the lowest possible level first. This value guides how we do relationships. These four values of the New Testament church guided how they did community. They believed in truth, believed in honoring the scriptures. I don't know how many of you have time or some of you need to realize you better do this because you need this in your life to join us in reading the scriptures through the year, devoting yourself to something beyond just the scroll. We're addicted to the scroll. I hate it. I deleted Instagram as soon as we finished that, that thing last night because the reels got me for this last week when I had it. I was like, man, I just gotta take a break. I don't know how many of you are in the scriptures with us. It is one of the most formative things that you can be part of in your life. But the thing is, a lot of us also forget this. It says that the Lord added thousands. You know, in the church, we talk about wanting to grow our church. We want to grow our church. I don't know how many of you realize this is the largest church in the North American division in all of the United States. Loma Linda University Church. We have about six and a half thousand people here. Now, there's a lot that someone could say, wow, take pride in that. Wow, that's awesome. But I want to share something with you from a study that I've been doing for my doctorate. I told you I'd be doing that over the last fall, and that's what I've been spending my time. That's why the elders preach, Gus, so thank you so much for doing that. I want to list to you what the Adventist church values in relation to ministry with young adults. Over six and a half thousand surveys were done. And listen to what the top highest commitments of the Adventist community were in terms of ministry to young adults. Taking Jesus' message seriously, truth, and creating a warm church environment. Those were the top strengths. The lowest commitments in the Adventist community in relation to young adult ministry, empathizing with young adults, and reaching out to the community. I don't know how many of you understand the significance of this. What this means is that our Adventist denomination, at least here in North America, values truth so much and supremely, and we want people to feel kind of welcome in here, but we don't actually want to be in community with them. Because there's a word that was used called empathy. That means desiring to know and understand, be in the life of people, be in koinonia with them. Our administration, our leaders, uh, denominationally, not necessarily here, but worldwide, 
might forget that young adults actually care that you know them, know their name, know their hopes, their dreams. One study came out that three-fourths of young adults don't actually have one single person in the church who they could share their dreams and hopes with that would help them achieve their life goals. Not one. How should the church look like? Well, first, let's talk about what the word church means. Ecclesia in the Greek. Literally defining it, it means the called out ones. The problem is we have been called out of the world, but God has called us into something as well, into community. And so here I ask you, would you consider following into the rhythms of love of this New Testament community as we begin this series and I finish tonight here with you? I want to challenge you tonight to practice one of the rhythms together. To have a rule of life together. Literally, a rule of life is just the patterns and behaviors that shape you into the love of God. And one of them is prayer. Prayer is a beautiful thing, but prayer can also be a deeply shallow thing. Because you don't trust the people that you're actually around. I don't know you. Yeah, that's the problem. We should know each other a little bit more. We should be willing to be a little bit vulnerable. I'm not asking you to have a counseling session, but what I am asking you to do is to genuinely pray for each other. And so tonight, as, as the band comes up and they play just something in the background, I want to encourage you to be as vulnerable as you want, but to actually pray with someone around you about something. Give a person next to you, don't go bigger than like four people, Give a person next to you something genuinely you want prayed over, something you need prayed over. Begin now, over this next week, evaluating, am I in community? Because I worry that we look like Christians on the outside, but when people step into our communities, we're just like everyone else around us in the world. And it's not that different but you guys are the Christians. And so my prayer is that God would transform your communities to become this next year genuine New Testament believing communities. Communities that are open to invite anyone into. Communities that genuinely seek to know Jesus in them. Communities that seek to know friendship at a, at a deeper level and not shallow surface level communities that actually invite people to eat with them. That's what I love about our life groups. That's what we called them life groups. You do life with people. Many of them eat before they start. Fellowship together. And then deeply pray for each other. Take the risk this week to ask someone, can I pray for you? And I want to ask you to do that tonight now with me, would you? Take that risk and pray with three, two, at least someone. If you'd feel comfortable to do that tonight just for a few minutes and then I'll pray for us. Do that now. All right, would you uh, bow your heads with me tonight as we finish? Jesus, thank you so much for the goodness of God. Lord, it is because of you that we are people of the covenant now. 
we who were Gentiles out of reach of the covenant now have been given access. We now, because of you, because of the blood and merits of your son, Jesus Christ, we can become part of the family of God. And so, Lord, thank you for your mercy and your sacrifice for us. And Jesus, my prayer is tonight that you would help every single one of us, God. You know the, the yearning we have in our hearts to, to live into this type of community as the first century church did that added so many to them because it was so attractive. It drew them into a beautiful way of life that they felt embraced. Lord, my prayer tonight is that you would strengthen us in just maybe one of these ways this week to broaden our understanding and to begin practicing now real community. Please, Lord, help us to leave our shallowness, our pettiness, our distraction, and jump into something more intimate and real and Holy Spirit-filled. In Jesus' name. Hey, thank you so much for joining us for the Night Church Podcast. We really are excited for where we're going, and you can help us in that mission. There's a few things that you can do. Number one is just stay connected. So if you want to follow up what's going on in the young adult ministry here at Loma Linda University Church, follow us on Instagram at Praxis Ministry. And then the other way to really build from this is to financially contribute. Your donations make such a big impact. And so if you go to lluc.org give, you can connect with Praxis Ministry there on a one-time gift or a reoccurring commitment. It makes such a difference. Well, we love you, care for you, and may God bless you richly as you take theory and make it into practice.